Welcome to Trending in Education. I'm Mike Palmer here. Very excited today to bring in a couple of guests who are developing a podcast in the space of what I'm calling congregational learning. We'll hear more from them about how they describe it and what they're doing. We have Matt Burke and Ben Tapper with us today. Matt and Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mike. Yeah, good to be here. Awesome. And Matt is the Director of Education for the Center for Congregations out of Indiana. And Ben is working with Matt there. And one of the things that the two of you have done, in addition to running this program, providing education for folks who are in the congregations, which we'll get into, but you've also launched a podcast as one of the formats that you're using to get your word out there. And I was a guest on your podcast. That show will be coming out in in the future. Matt, maybe just to begin with you, can you describe quickly what your organization is, what your job is, and how the podcast relates? Yeah, sure. So the Center for Congregations, our main mission is to help congregations find and use resources. And by resources, we mean outside expertise. We think congregations are relatively healthy spaces and have a lot of good creativity on their own. But when you can match that internal creativity and capacity with outside expertise, really good things can happen. Mm -hmm. And so we stand in that gap and there are just several ways that we do that. But the podcast was natural outgrowth of that mission Mm -hmm. that we try to talk to experts and help congregations access outside expertise in that way. We also have a resource guide at the end of the episode that they can find articles, books, or organizations to do more Mm follow-up. And our hope is just to get them really thinking and growing in whatever direction that they desire. Yeah. And and then Ben, as the co-host of the show, have you done other podcasts or was this your first dip in the pool? Can you describe how you got involved with the podcast? Yeah. Personally, I have done other podcasts. I've got two of my own that that I do and, and host myself and I've been interviewed on several. So I'm somewhat familiar with the podcasting space. We got started, uh, honestly, Matt had this idea a while back and it just got tabled, didn't really go anywhere. And so when I came on board, I like to ask a lot of questions. I thought maybe podcasting would be cool for us to get into as an organization. And so I learned that Matt had thought about it enough to even have a draft episode. Mm. And so I was just like, man, let's do it. Let's make it happen. We tinkered with it, played around with the idea, pitched it to uh, our president, and we got the the green light to go ahead and, and do it faster than either of us anticipated. And we were able just to, to jump in. I think I just came in and gave a little bit of momentum to this idea that Matt already had and was sitting on and just waiting for the right time to to bring it to life. Yeah, that's awesome. Because one of the things that I really liked about being on your show and listening to a few episodes is that it's very clear that the two of you have a good professional vibe, but then you're also able to keep it real in a way that podcasting by its very nature is an authentic medium. It's very hard to fake the funk in this space. Sticking with you, Ben, we always begin as a little rite of initiation is to ask for our guests' origin stories in true Comic-Con sensibility. How did you get to this point in your professional life and what's your angle and your thoughts on the future of learning? Absolutely. Can I just say before I jump into that answer that I love the phrase, you can't fake the funk. I think the funk should never be faked. (laughs) That needs to be on a t-shirt somewhere if it's not already. (laughs) Um, In terms of my professional origin, I started here in Indianapolis working for the mayor's office through AmeriCorps for a year and then got into community outreach. And I've always had a passion for community work, a passion for justice and trying to bring equity into the spaces that I I have to move and operate in. And so I spent some time in working for schools themselves, doing community outreach and and event coordination for a local network of schools here in Indy, then made my way into more social services spaces before just doing a complete 
left turn and going to seminary and, and, and working as a chaplain, working in a local church here in Indy, uh, starting to do more writing and speaking in faith-based spaces. And then after seminary, about nine months later, I found myself working here for the Center for Congregations. And so for me, working here has been the culmination of bringing a couple of different lanes of my life together. This one lane that's very justice-focused, community-focused, and this other lane that is very faith-based, faith-focused. And so I've been working to, tr to marry those lanes, and I feel like the last two years has been the realization of that work to bring those together and to live more fully. And so between the work at the center, work that I do with my podcasts and my writing and my speaking, I'm able to, to do that more fully and to live more fully. Awesome. Good stuff. Are you ready to follow that, Matt? Not so much. To keep it brief, I went to college, got my BA in religion, and then went to seminary. I thought I was on track to become uh, a clergy leader at some point, but towards the end of my seminary career, I realized I was more gifted in and, and passionate about education. And just so happened, I had a part-time job at Kaplan Test Prep as an instructor. And so I was able to move full-time into that and spent full-time after seminary for six years, I think, and then in the online division as well. I learned a ton about online education through that. You worked with some really great people during that time span too, I believe, Matt. Is that correct? A few. So, yeah, full transparency, Mike and I were were colleagues. So I spent that time there and then uh, we moved to Indiana. Just I was working from home at the time. And then somebody that I knew said, hey, I think you'd be really good at this job. The, a role came open at the center. Mm -hmm. And originally I was not the education director. I was just the Northeast director, but then I had the opportunity to take over education. And uh, so I've been doing that for close to five years now, the education role. And uh, boy, you talk about right place, right time, all that online ed, the pandemic hits. And then uh, we've done 125 to 130 live online events in the mm. last uh, 14 months mm -hmm. and uh, then launched the podcast last September. So a lot of what I learned about learning uh, has definitely come into play. Yeah. This show is a podcast about the future of learning. And in particular, something I'm focusing more on lately is how do you connect the dots between what's emerging in the learning space and what's adjacent to it? If you could... Describe a little bit of who your audience is, what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish. Yep, we serve any congregation in Indiana. And uh, so that represents a wide breadth of, of congregations, of theological backgrounds, even sometimes of sacred texts. The work that we do historically has been more about infrastructure, facilities or leadership or finance, things like that. And we've branched out a little bit from that in recent years. But even with theological differences, congregations share so much in common with one another. And it's one of the things that we try to cover. And a lot of what we cover, you really don't learn in seminary. The seminary is about Greek or Hebrew language, scripture study, things like that. Don't get me wrong. It's very important, but there's a lot that you don't learn. Because for those of you who aren't familiar with congregational life, for example, a clergy leader, they're expected basically to be able to do everything well. And if you were to put a list of everything a clergy leader is supposed to be good at, there's facility management, there's budget and finance, there's pastoral care, meaning like taking care of people if they're in crisis or if they're mm -hmm. ill, mm -hmm. there's being a public speaker once a week, there's creating a service, creating basically a one-hour presentation with music and all kinds of other things during that week. You need to be good at interpersonal communication, so you need to be friendly and you yeah. need to be nice. So. Right. And the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that there's really any traditional education system that covers all those bases. It just yeah. doesn't. Yeah. And uh, so that's one of the things that we try to do is bring some of those things in, in to help not only clergy, but also lay leaders and congregations. Yeah. And 
churches tend to be, congregations tend to be a little behind in terms of technology, or, or at least the ways that they go about doing things. Before the pandemic, a lot of congregations weren't even really engaged in online spaces much at all, that we had tried some online events tentatively, and there was a little bit of traction there, but folks just really weren't used to online in that way. And you think about the model of faith formation, it's called faith formation in some circles, called discipleship and others, but you're, you're trying to educate your congregation about your faith tenets. What's important to us? How do we interpret the Bible? How do we understand our sacred texts? And that was still pretty much a model of you get in a room and you sit in rows and somebody does a presentation. So there was a a very big gap between how congregations are trying to teach their faith traditions and the ways in which education is now happening in the modern world. Mm -hmm. And so there's an amazing opportunity for us to try to help with that, not only by modeling it and in the way that we try to educate congregations, but also bringing some of those educational tools to them and helping them think about how can we teach and educate differently because your congregation has all kinds of people who are very busy, not a lot of free time. And so how do you educate in those spaces when used to be people would go maybe every day to their church or they would go three times a week. And now average attendance is considered like two to three times per month on a Sunday morning. And that's right. about it. I was just going to jump in and say that I think because of the the wide variety of congregations and people that we end up serving, they come from such different contexts. We have learned, especially because of the pandemic, that we also need to do some adaptation to how we offer education opportunities and how we try to connect to these congregations with the experts and the knowledge that we want to connect them with. And so the pandemic, I think, freed us up to be a, a little more imaginative about the ways in which we do educational programming and the ways in which we go about connecting folks with resources and even the mediums that we're using, trying to figure out how do we use podcasts? How do we use Zoom? Are we ever going to go back in person? How do we use social media? How long do we keep uh, content on our social media page? It it just created a lot of these interesting questions and dynamics that I think, to Matt's point, allow us to not only connect folks with resources, but to model the, the very same questions that congregations have to ask themselves. We're able to relate even more um, intentionally and deeply than we were before the pandemic. Yeah, and I imagine the pandemic had to have been really transformative to what your program was prior to what it is now. Although it sounds like in some ways, based on your background, Matt, you taught online, you, you delivered really compelling online experiences over the years. You knew that it could be good and it could actually be something that people would, would appreciate, but the adoption wasn't really there until the pandemic forced it. Can you describe your experiences as this wave came through? Such a transformative year for all of us, but in particular in your space where people are frequently relying on the congregation for support and for comfort and solace in in difficult times. I'm sure it was a very meaning-rich experience doing what you do over that period of time. Yeah, it was really interesting because prior to the pandemic, the number of things we had to research and look into were vast because every congregation is dealing with something a little different. Maybe they're a rural congregation trying to think about how do we get more contact with young adults, an urban congregation trying to figure out how do we better reach the community around us. So a lot of disparate topics but the pandemic brought everybody zeroing in on precisely the same things. How do we do this online because we can't meet in person? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we take care of people when we can't physically get together with them? How do we continue faith formation and discipleship when we can't gather together? And so there was this intense focus on a few very specific things. And that really helped us out 
from the standpoint that we were then able to do deep dives in those places mm -hmm. and then bring the best of what we could find on those topics to congregations. And it's changed a little bit as the pandemic has shifted, but I would say that digital education, online spaces, they are not going anywhere. I think the landscape of congregational life has changed for good. I think this is like the printing press, a, a Copernican shift of major proportions that congregations are going to do things differently from now on because yeah. of now the adoption of technology. Yeah. You got Gutenberg and Copernicus in there. So good on <laughs> you. It's striking to me how analogous online teaching is to what an online service has become in the past year, particularly in terms of the technical setup. Starting with you, Matt, and then I'd love to hear a little more from Ben. Any perspective on that, on what's similar and how folks have adopted it, and then how in the future, even if some of the, the more ceremonial site-based aspects of the congregational experience are probably going to move more towards uh, the sanctuary and the physical space, some of these elements, I think, will maintain, at least on the educational side, but I'd be curious how you think about educational experiences versus more congregational experiences. What's similar, different? Yeah, I think it's really making congregations rethink and have to examine what it is that they're doing on a week-to-week -week basis. Because once the pandemic hit, there were some doctrines that kind of pushed forth the idea that you really can't do church online. It's just not possible because it has to be embodied. It has to be the Eucharist. It has to be communion. These things all have to be part of it, which there's some validity to the importance of those practices. But then suddenly when your state says, hey, guess what? You can't do that anymore. They had to struggle through and figure out how do we create meaningful experiences in digital spaces. But then I think it also helped to begin to tease out what needs to take place in person and what can take place at a distance. One congregation that I talked to were excited about the, how much Zoom they've used because they had a board member who goes to Florida for six months every year. And so that person was not on the board half the year, but mm -hmm. now have the meetings online. And so mm -hmm. now they're a part of the congregation year round, as opposed to missing out for six months and maybe mm -hmm. even now attending service throughout that whole time, yeah. as opposed to attending a different congregation somewhere else. I think the examination of what can we move and keep online and what's core and so important to do in person, I think that's a key question that's important to explore and that congregations are exploring. Yeah, that makes sense. And it reminds me of, Ben, you mentioned the word uh, intentionality during your open. Can you talk a little more about what you meant by that and how that relates to some of the awakenings that folks may have had over the past year? Sure. Yeah. An example that came to mind as Matt was talking, we have a, a coworker and a colleague here who's a member of an Orthodox congregation. And I didn't realize it until talking with them that there are some pretty key differences in the worship experience that mean you have to think differently about how to connect folks in a virtual environment. So one key example for an Orthodox congregation or an Orthodox worship experience, there are a lot of not only sights, but also smells that are an integral part mm. you know, of the worship experience of what it means to come together as a body. And isn't the case in a lot of Protestant traditions. How do you capture that aroma? How do you engage more than just the visual and auditory senses mm. uh, if that is part of your tradition? And I think those are still some questions that congregations have to wrestle with. And, and if we are in ecumenical spaces, how do we then hold space virtually 
to be respectful of folks from those traditions for whom uh, other senses are an important part of their worship experience. So I, I think there are a lot of spaces where this intentionality has been important and we've done well serving whoever our people are, right, in a right, congregational right. sense. Mm-hmm. But we still have to do some more imagination on, on what it means maybe to be more ecumenical or there are just traditions that have had a, a more difficult time adapting because to my knowledge, Google hasn't found a way to integrate smells <laughs> into the virtual space. I think right. it's coming, which yeah. is not there yet. You know, well, I, I like to joke that I'm an olfactory learner and I have talked about scratch and sniff educational products because mm-hmm. our memory is very closely associated with yes. it's the same neighborhood of the brain where the olfactory bulb is. So mm-hmm. I didn't expect to get into smells there, but, but I think hey. there's <laughs> that's, that's a really interesting space to understand. And then the flip side is, Not everyone knows what ecumenical means. I think I do, but Mm -hmm. can you just define that quickly for us? Yeah, and and I think I do is probably what I would say too. But no, as I understand the term ecumenical, it's basically this idea of bringing together people from different denominations, theological viewpoints, especially within the Christian tradition, but it can also be interfaith as well. And it's this idea of getting to be more crude about it, someone that's Catholic, someone that's Protestant, someone that's Orthodox in a, a room together and in a meeting, that'd be like an ecumenical meeting, right? They're from different branches yeah. of, of the Christian tradition, right. um, as opposed to just one branch. Yeah, that's what I mean. So it's like the old, uh, you know, a priest, rabbi, and an Anglican pastor walk into a bar, yeah. that bar would be ecumenical. Yes. Thank that's you right. for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. Matt, I wanted to go deeper on ecumenical. Aside from stumbling into that joke, I also mm-hmm. wanted to talk about how an ecumenical orientation, which is very much foundational to what you're doing at the Center for Congregations, connects to the polarization that's happening and the the diversity and seeking difference uh, component of a lot of the conversations that have been happening. It's why ecumenical, I think, is a word that people should understand because there's a long history of it. It ties back to a lot of the the social movements, even of the 1960s in the U.S. There there was a big push towards the freedom fighters in many cases were ecumenical in their orientation, the Southern Poverty Law Center. There's a long history of that ecumenical orientation driving towards social justice. Maybe sticking with you, Ben, real quick on that. Any perspective on that? Because it sounds like you've occupied both spaces in some ways. Yeah, I think this has been a front and center for us as an organization, especially over the last year. We've been wrestling with what does it mean to be an anti-racist organization while also continuing to serve congregations effectively, knowing that that we serve congregations across the the, the, uh, theological spectrum, across the political spectrum. So how do we brand ourselves as anti-racist without doing too much alienation? So there's this kind of fine line that I think we've been trying to walk and other organizations have been trying to walk as well. But I, I think at some point, you have to recognize that no matter who you are, no matter what organizational stance you take, you're going to bring some people in, you're going to lose some folks. So it's more a matter of what is our foundational value and are we living into that in the most loving, truthful, authentic way possible? And if, if you can do that, then I think the chips can fall where they may. But yeah, it's, it's something that I think a lot of folks are wrestling with and that we as an organization have had to wrestle with as well. Yeah, and there's, there's lessons to be learned from the past there too. I think in terms of managing the the period of social upheaval that was arguably greater even than what we're having that that we saw in the 1960s into the early Mm -hmm. 70s, there is a history there and there is a history of looking to faith-based organizations to help us navigate times of crisis. And that's why I think the space that you're occupying is a really important one. 
And it's also one where I think in many ways you have to model, getting back to the teaching side of things, Matt, that you were talking about, you have to model what it's like to be fair and equitable and inclusive and caring as the facilitator of a conversation. And in many ways that requires the the social emotional savvy, the, the, the human skills that traditionally haven't been part of really just about any curriculum, although that's been an awakening in uh, K-12 in particular. But any perspective on that? Uh, maybe picking up with you, Matt, on the, the how do you model some of the better ways of behaving and how do you do it in a way that almost gets your ego out of the way? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, I think our stance of theological hospitality says a lot about that. And what we mean by theological hospitality, I have to go over this with every presenter we bring in, because we don't do the education. I don't do the education events. We host them, but we have outside experts come in to speak about these topics. Mm -hmm. And our stance of theological hospitality says, we don't want you to mask your theological background, but we ask that you use language that's more inclusive, such as using congregation instead of church. We often have rabbis in the room in a lot of our events. We're proud of that fact. We love having them there. And so we, we don't want them to have to do too much translation from yeah. church stuff to, to synagogue. And also just saying things like if you are basing a topic or a bullet point off of a specific Bible verse, then we ask you to say in the faith tradition that I'm from, we look at this verse to back up this idea. Mm -hmm. And so it's just an open acknowledgement that you're not hiding your own faith, but you're saying, I'm recognizing that those of you in the room may not share this and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so we try to just create an environment where that is upfront and center so that people feel free to be themselves, but also just trying to have them understand that there are other people in the room that may not believe like you do, mm -hmm. but that's okay. We can all learn here together and spend time here together. And it's been a very useful stance that's been part of the center since its beginning. I'll add to that, Matt. I think another thing that we do well, and I think that you, Matt, honestly do really well in particular, is relationship building. So that's a core value of the work that we do as consultants, as education facilitators, even as podcast hosts. It's building relationships, whether that be with individual congregations, with the experts that we're inviting in, or with the people at these education events. And a key component of relationship is good communication and then knowing how to handle conflict. So it's not that problems won't ever arise, that people won't ever be upset, but when it happens, approaching that with humility, being willing to name when you mess up and committed to finding a way forward together. And I think those components are so key. And it makes a big difference when you approach an event building relationships, which again, Matt, I think you do this so well. Whenever we have a podcast host on, you are really intentional about like asking them how they're doing, holding space for them, just having that moment of connection before we get down to business. And that's something that, that as a system, we're trying to, to normalize and do better across the board. But when we talk about ecumenical spaces, dealing with polarizing topics, relationship has to be foundational to that. Yeah. I imagine there's lessons to be learned from the space that you're operating in that can be applied to other spaces. What are some of the lessons that the rest of us could learn from what your experience has been like in helping congregations navigate their experiences over these challenging times? What lessons have you learned and where do you think they might be applicable? There's a thought that's playing around in my head about adaptability. Congregational spaces especially can feel so difficult to change. I think that's probably true for any institution, right? And so we saw thousands of congregations that for whatever reason hadn't made the switch to utilize the technology that was available. 
And had you asked me 18 months ago, I would have said, yeah, yeah, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. However, when push came to shove, we saw leader after leader step up, recognize the need and be willing to make that shift and not only make the shift, but then be willing to allow it to stick and to let their imagination be expanded. And so one of the lessons that I'm learning is that when push comes to shove, People, organizations, institutions can indeed adapt. And that adaptation really depends upon the type of leadership that you have in place at the time. So adaptability has to be a key component of leadership, whether you've been there 20 years or you're just coming on board, how adaptable can you be? And the second lesson that I just mentioned is that relationships are everything. I think the pandemic in particular brought that out in congregational life where, you know, people, yeah, we're concerned about how do we ensure that our population can connect to our service week in and week out? But they're also concerned about, are they safe? What's their health and well-being? How is their mental health? We've seen an increase in, in that topic as well. And so there's a holistic understanding of what it means to be in community that includes physical health, mental health, coming together personally that, that I think has been brought out in this and that I think can be applied, whether you're talking about the classroom, mm. uh, community events, education events. How do we think holistically about what it means to be in relationship and to keep the various components of relationship in mind? And when you can utilize those various components of relationship, I think you have a greater chance at connecting with someone, at passing on information. And, and as the receiver of information, you have a greater chance of then integrating that information and allowing it to stay with you if it's coming from a place of relationship, if your whole being is being um, assessed and activated in the process. Yeah. Any thoughts from you? Yeah, I, there's a lot. <laughs> I could go on several different tangents, but piggybacking up on what Ben was saying, any system or organization, regardless of what its end goal is, needs to assess itself every now and again and say, are we using the best tools at hand? Are we adapting to shifting landscapes of what's happening in our world? Because the acceleration of technological adaptation is absolutely absurd. Mm. And if you're not paying attention to it, if, if you do the status quo for 18 months, you're probably behind. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that you chuck everything constantly and reinvent the wheel, but are there people in your organization that are paying attention to trends and bringing them to the table to talk about how can we implement these things to do what we do better? Education, even Mike, we experienced at Kaplan, when we started looking at curriculum design, there was a little bit of pushback from some of the more stable parts of the organization that we said, hey, you really need to look at some of these things of how you design your curriculum and we would present it to them, but there was uh, some reluctance to adopt those things because it took big change and it would have been difficult, but we knew based on what we were learning, it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens in any organization, especially the larger you get, the, the more, more you scale, mm -hmm. it's harder to implement that. And you've got to have some people in the organization who are paying attention and bringing things to the table and being willing to experiment and fail sometimes yeah. in order to think about what you're doing and how do you do it better as new technologies crop up. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when that's driven by external factors versus when it can be driven just by your own inertia, countering status quo, countering the tendency to not make change. And that's what I maybe as we're getting closer to concluding here, I'd love to get a little more perspective on after this shock to system, whatever you want to call it, a tsunami, a meteor strike, name your calamity, a plague, something just happened that was so profound and transformative that it shook everybody up. People were forced to be adaptable, make some of those changes. 
But now as a lot of those restrictions are, are being lifted, any thoughts on what the future might be? Particularly the, the conversation around hybrid and blending of online and in-person is one that when I think about the future of the congregational experience and, and learning about congregations and for congregations to learn, I'm always drawn back to different hybrid scenarios, but I'd love to get each of your perspectives on this. I don't have an answer as much as I have lingering questions that I'm holding about this and they're twofold. The first is, as we've seen congregations, really everyone move to adapt more virtual styles of meeting. I personally have witnessed a lot of older generations step into technology in ways that they hadn't before, our, our older Gen X, our boomers, et cetera. But I wonder what it means moving forward for the millennials, for the Gen Z, for whom they've already been steeped in technology. I've got an 18-month-old son who knew how to work a phone from the time he was six months. What is it going to mean for him to, to keep him engaged if technology isn't this novel thing? How do you have the a context that engages him personally while also keeping the flexibility you need for those that may not be able to, to be there in person? So that's one generational question. Mm -hmm. and, and the other is a question around equity that I think was highlighted even more during the period of the pandemic and the, the racial unrest that we experienced, particularly as it relates to the pandemic, though, we saw whether we were talking about schools, churches, congregations, community centers, there was an inequitable level of access across the board to technology, right? You had low-income students, primarily students of color that, that couldn't quite get consistent internet access to do the learning that they needed to do, or they couldn't get access to the computers, the tablets that they needed to do that learning on. And so if we're going to continue, and I think we have to, to utilize technology in a hybrid manner, what systems and stop gaps and resources do we need to put in place to ensure that access is equitable? Because that's the whole point of, of this emergence or this push into virtual hybrid spaces, increasing access, right? So we can't increase access for certain groups of people and then ignore other groups of people that have already historically been ignored. So for those that are thinking about these things, a question that I'm continually holding is, how do we have equitable access? How do we offer equitable access so that we're reaching our goal of, of connecting with more people instead of less people? Mm -hmm. I'll jump in on the back end of that as well, Ben. I think that's right on because early in the days of the pandemic, we heard some congregational leaders saying that their constituents who were in maybe assisted living homes or nursing homes had never felt more connected to their congregation because suddenly now it's online. There was a great creativity around how folks were getting information from the congregation to people in those situations. Even if they didn't have the technology, some of them literally were printing sermon transcripts and yeah. mailing them to mm. people. We had a small town here in Indiana that the mayor came to them and said, hey, can you ring your bell every day at noon just to remind everybody that you're here and we're mm. here together, we're in this together. So I think going back to sleep and forgetting, like Ben was saying, the access, I think there are places where congregations are accessing a much broader audience than they used to and taking care of people that they were missing. And I would hate for them to lose that. Mm -hmm. And then adding on to that, I think congregations that don't embrace the digital space, I think are going to become irrelevant within the next 10, 15 years, or maybe even sooner. I don't know. And again, I'm speaking of possibility, but my gut says now that people have had a taste of what it means to connect online, when people go on vacation, they'll want that option to be able to potentially attend their congregation while they're on vacation, or maybe they're not feeling well. And to feel like you're a part of that community still, even if you're physically distanced, we had a taste of that. And if congregations don't pay attention and they, they start to lose the focus on the quality of that experience, they're probably going to alienate some people who may find another congregation who is doing that very well. 
Yeah. And so I think it's important for congregations and I think honestly, any business, any learning organization out there, mm -hmm. what have you learned that you can carry into the future that we've done this well during the pandemic and we can continue to do it well moving forward mm -hmm. and find better ways to make use of people's time to respect their time. And if there's aspects of asynchronous that you can do it asynchronously, ask the question, why is it important for us to gather together live online or even live in person? There better be a good reason for it or else you should be doing it in a different way. So thinking yeah. about the modes to respect the busyness of people's lives in our culture. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, particularly if you're talking about reaching the rising generations to Ben's point and to the broader point about the future of really religious activity in our culture. How are we reaching the younger generations to help them understand their spiritual path when in particular, uh, a lot of the research indicates that they're lonelier than ever, they're on social media more than ever. There's a unique set of challenges around that emerging space that we wind up thinking a lot about as educators. But when you start thinking more around moral education and spiritual education, that is something that is also emergent character education and the importance of values, where I think in many places, we're all going to want to look more to folks who are doing the great work that the two of you are doing at the Center for Congregations. Concluding thoughts, final bring it home moments here. Any last things to share with our audience? Thank you so much to each of you. Uh, for joining. The name of the podcast is the Center for Congregations podcast. It's available through all podcasting platforms. Matt, before we get into any final thoughts, any places people should go if they want to learn more about anything we talked about today? Yeah. If you're part of a congregation and are looking for resources, we have a website called the CRG. It stands for Congregational Resource Guide. So it's thecrg.org. Uh, it's basically a place where we have uh, cultivated close to 2,000 and we're adding constantly of some of the best resources we've found among all kinds of things related to congregational life. It's free to use. Uh, you can even get into the chat with somebody. There's no charge for anything that we do. We're generously funded by the Lilly Endowment. So the work that we do is free to congregations. So if you're outside of Indiana, check out the CRG. If you happen to be listening and you're inside of Indiana, check out our website because we have all kinds of services that we offer to Indiana congregations, again, for free. Uh, so check us out at centerforcongregations.org. Awesome. You're both have some practice in, in seminaries, so you probably can put a, a, a nice closing bow on the lovely uh, prize that we've provided to our listeners today. Any concluding thoughts as we're wrapping up here? Are, are you asking for a benediction, Mike? <laughs> I'm asking for whatever you're willing to offer. <laughs> ben, that's you, man. I think what we've learned from the pandemic uh, and also from each other in conversation today is the importance of relationship and continually learning together. No matter what sphere you're working in, there's learning that can happen. And so I hope that we don't take this connectivity and the ability to connect and engage for granted and that we learn the lessons that people in other sectors are applying and figure out the best ways to apply them to our context so that we can do what we all want to do, which is build better relationships, create a more equitable society, and to ensure that people that need access, that want access, can have access to the information, to the context, and the experiences that we're providing and offering. Awesome. Fantastic stuff. Matt Burke and Ben Tapper, Center for Congregations podcast, Center for Congregations. Uh, wonderful conversation. Thanks both of you for joining. And for our listeners, uh, thanks as always for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing, tell a friend, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.